Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Welcome to the Natural Running Network's Q&A episode. I decided that since most of the feedback that I get from the consumers that listen to our podcast tell me that they really, really enjoy when we banter back and forth with real people, people that are in it, they're, they're involved in the sport, and they're trying to learn as much as they can to improve in the sport. So rather than bringing on some big mucky muck, uh, high caliber athlete to talk shop about how wonderful they are, I thought it might be fun to bring somebody on that has some earnest interest in trying to improve and also going to field some questions from some people that aren't going to be on the show with us but have sent the questions in. And having said all that, I want to also let people know that this weekend at the Temecula Spartan Race event, I will be at the Pala Mesa Resort. It's about uh, 15, 20 minutes just outside the race, and I'll be there with Hunter McIntyre. We're going to do a little informal social gathering, going to be able to chat about questions people might have about racing, whatever whatever you want to talk about, we're going to, we're going to do that with you. And we're going to do it with a couple cocktails, so we're going to have some loose lips, and we'll probably sing some ships. But in the meantime, I have with me Justin Cody Higgs, who is from Nashville, Tennessee, a fledging all-star OCR athlete, and he came on graciously to share some questions with me. Say hello to our audience. How's it going? Do you go by Justin or you go by Cody? I go by Cody. All right. Cody, full disclosure, we're going to meet next week, right? Yes, sir. And I got a full day for you. We're gonna we're gonna figure you out, and hopefully, after having done all that, we're gonna send you home with all kinds of new stuff to play with, and hopefully, help you to become a better athlete. How's that sound? That sounds awesome. Cody, you had some questions, and hopefully, I'll try to sound smart and be able to answer these questions for you. Go ahead and shoot. Um, I guess, uh, you know, a big reason that I'm coming out there in the first place is just thinking about avoiding injury, uh, getting faster and being able to go farther, go longer. Uh, I mean, huge benefits, but, uh, you know, for, uh, I've got a really young son and when he's 10 or 15 years old, I still want to be able to go play with him and not be like, I can't stand up right now because my knees are jacked up from poor running for him for several years in a row. Um, So I'll say that leading into the first question. Um, When I'm, like, watching myself, uh, probably a bad idea, but in the mirror at the gym on the treadmill, and I feel like I'm trying to get the correct form, I almost feel like I'm leaning way over while I'm running. Is that common... Is that like how you're supposed to feel? I don't know. Okay, so we're talking about being on a treadmill and you're feeling like your posture is falling forward. 
maybe bent over at the waist a little bit? Yeah. All right. Well, first of all, being on a treadmill to begin with, it's very difficult to get good posture. The treadmill on its own is typically going to cause you to be a little bit more erect. And Mm -hmm. what I would prefer to see in a runner is a little bit of a forward lean, which you can't mimic that really on a treadmill. So I wouldn't get too buggy about that. Um, And it sounds to me like you're probably overthinking what you're trying to get done and trying to get a forward lean. So that's almost encouraging you to bend over at the waist. So uh, I would just let it go and try to stand as uh, erect posture-wise as possible and then focus on the circumstances at hand, whatever it might be, if you're doing hill repeats, if you're doing kind of a base run type of thing, but focus on the details, which we may end up discussing here soon enough. All right. Good deal. Good answer. Um, So, and, you know, I, uh, I never heard about doing 180 strides per minute uh, until I started doing, I do Yancey camp and increased my mileage and increased it and increased it. And then I start having some, uh, like some real tightness on the muscles in front of my shins. Uh, So I asked Yancey, what do I do? He said, try doing 180 strides per minute. So I run on a metronome, do 180 per minute, but sometimes I still get that really tight feeling. I thought maybe you have an idea on what causes that. Okay. It's really a good question, actually. It leads me to some things we were just talking about this past weekend at the clinic we did on Sunday. I don't want to get into a playing with our toes kind of a conversation at the moment, but on that thread, thinking in terms of your great toe, I want you to check, when you get a chance, the mobility of your great toe, how much movement you can get, dorsiflexing, pushing it up, and plantar flexing, pushing it down. See how much range of motion you get there. And then I want you to check your ankle mobility, how much mobility you get at the ankle. So if you were basically to kneel over, and put your toes up against a wall. And then bring your knee as forward as you possibly can. So with your toes against the wall, you should be able to kneel and put your knee against the wall without having to lift your heel. And then having been successful in doing that, back your your foot up about six inches, and then try it again to see if you could shift your knee forward to touch the wall without lifting your heel. And essentially, you want to do a little experimentation there to see how much range of motion you can get without lifting your heel off the ground. Do the same thing with both feet. And there's a very good likelihood that there's a lot of tension somewhere up that chain. And Mm -hmm. if you can't effectively dorsiflex your ankle, then you tend to harbor some of the tension in your lower leg as you're running. Assuming that you're at 180 strides per minute, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that you're probably not heel striking at that point because it's really tough to heel strike when your cadence is that high. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like I'm twinkle toes whenever my uh, whenever my the muscles in the front of my legs get that tight. Oh, say tw- twinkle toes meaning that you're running more on your toes. You feel? Yes, it, at that point it's nearly impossible to do anything but run right on my toes and sometimes I just have to stop and walk. That's good to hear you say that because that just suggests to me that what you're doing is as you are referring to it as being twinkle toes you're running too far up on your forefoot and that's going to cause a lot of loading in your tibialis anterior the front of your leg. You're imposing kind of a braking force and you're doing it toe first. So as your heel tries to set down your your calf and your your tibialis are working against each other to try to break down that loading. And so you just need to relax your feet a little bit more. And don't be so concerned about looking down to see whether you're doing the right thing with your feet. If you just focus on the cadence and just let your feet do what they're going to do, you're probably going to be in a better place. Uh, but I could tell you that since we are going to see each other a week from now, We're going to get that all sorted out pretty quickly. 
and that's not going to be a problem anymore. This brings me to something that I think is pretty interesting because I do this kind of work with people from all over the world. And what I commonly hear from people is that they've read something somewhere along the way and they've gathered some what they felt to be very good information about how they should approach their running. And on paper, the information looks pretty sound. And then they find it's very, very difficult to replicate what it is that they've read. And for one reason or another, it goes badly when they try it on their own. And I'm coming to the conclusion that absent being able to physically get involved with people or being able to review video of the way they're moving and then communicating with them, it's very, very difficult to really learn how to run just because you read a book someplace or you, you know, for example, read Born to Run. And I think Born to Run, quite frankly, was uh, a really interesting read. And I think it got a lot of people thinking about what they might be trying to do. But at the same token, it hurt a lot of people because they immediately shifted to a very minimal shoe and they immediately tried to get up on their forefoot. And that, that traded the type of injuries they typically were experiencing in the back of their legs to injuries now that occur on the front of the legs. And that's kind of where you're headed with what you're doing. So I'm glad we're going to meet because we're going to get a chance to sort that out. Right. And I, I mean, I really feel like unless someone is right there with you and they're able to stay right there with you and analyze everything, uh, I mean, it's it's tough trying to figure out something that I basically know nothing about. Um on my own by reading or just or like having a conversation with someone about it. Right. Because uh, I've, I've done it one way for 30-something years, and to just try to change it is really difficult. Well, i got to tell you, you know, here you're talking about trying to make some changes at 30, and I've had people make comments about that, people that are pretty successful runners over the course of their life, and the notion of actually changing what they're doing drastically is really, really tough for them to wrap their head around. And they're assuming that because they've been doing what they've been doing for so many years, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you that I'm 63 years old, and I've never been a great runner, but I have run well relative to my size when I was your age, I put down a pretty decent marathon time, and I put on some pretty decent 10Ks and half marathon times, but I was a terrible heel striker, and I used to jack my knees up. I mean, and I was I was pretty tough. I rolled around yeah. at about, say, 190, 195 pounds, because I'm a relatively big guy, but I was able to get upwards of 70 miles worth of running in a week, and uh, just thought I destroyed my knees. Never, ever, ever did anybody tell me that the culprit behind those injuries was part and parcel because I was landing on my heels and overstriding. And the good news is that after so many years, I changed the way I move. And, you know, the unfortunate end is now that I'm old and I'm fat, I'm never going to see the type of finish times that I used to uh, see when I ran, but I can run without injury. I can run and not be concerned that what I'm doing is damaging joints, causing me discomfort in my back, my hip, my knees, my shin, my, you know, I'm not experiencing any of those types of things. I'm experiencing things that I'm having trouble battling with, which is the fact that I'm getting old. Right. But short of that, I can run without injury. And so I've seen and I've actually been very successful in orchestrating change in very successful runners and making adaptations for them that that they never experienced before. Yeah. So I'll go a step further. I had uh, Rose Wetzel was with me uh, a couple days ago. And Rose was a very successful collegiate track and field athlete. She ran the 400, 800. She's still at a place where now she's even thinking about the Olympic trials. And... I found some things that we needed to work on in the way she moves. We set about making some changes, and almost instantaneously, her running improved. There's nobody that I'm, I've met so far that 
is absolutely perfect in the way they move. And with an outward opinion, someone looking at what you're doing and giving you a little bit, bit of advice, assuming they know what they're talking about, we all still have room. We still have room to improve. Right. Well, and you know, like what you're talking about, even like working with Rose, I mean, obviously I, I follow, you know, mo- most of the uh, OCR stuff and watch every show I can on TV, read articles and whatnot. But, um, you know, like you watch her on TV and there's so much speed and power there. And then to hear that she comes in and you're able to show her a couple things and get her faster. Um, and that's what people talk to me. They're like, you're really going to go see a guy in California for running? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but but they, they don't understand. It's kind of like getting to go be coached for football by Bill Belichick, except for, like, you don't cheat at stuff. <laughs> I would if I could. <laughs> if, if I thought there was a way to cheat and make you better, I'd probably do it. Well, you could deflate people's <laughs> shoes or something, but um, but but it really is. I mean that that's kind of the level that you're on. So I don't mind, you know, putting the money up for the plane ticket and all that stuff. Well, I got to tell you, um, I know you're traveling a long distance, but it's not the <laughs> furthest that someone's come to me from. Oh, well, I don't <laughs> figure it is. Yeah. I've had people come as far away as Australia, and yeah. And you know what? A lot of it has got to do with frustration. I'll tell you where I find this to be most prevalent is that let's just say, for example, that you've been battling with issues with your knee or your hip or whatever, and in and out of the physical therapist's office, and you know there it's a three day a week situation, and every time you go out to try to run, it goes badly. And so you just described my past eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, well, it you know, and it gets to a place where, number one, uh, certainly if you're paying cash for the therapy, it's really ugly. Uh, hopefully with your insurance and through the copay and what have you, you can get to a better place with it. Right. But just the sheer frustration of inability to participate in the sport that you love because you're getting hurt. And here's what I've taken from it. You hurt yourself, and you should go see a physical therapist or a physician to figure out the extent of the injury. And typically what they do is they get you out of the pain cycle. That's what their job is, is to stop whatever is causing you to hurt. And so if it's a function of inflammation or if it's a function of a, a strained ligament or tendon or if it's an issue with a meniscus, whatever it might be, they're their sole function is to get you out of pain. Mm-hmm. And then once you're out of pain, it's on you to keep from or recreating that problem. And right. if you go back and do what you've been doing, the likelihood is that you're just going to hurt yourself again. And you'd be surprised. It's like I used to say it, and I think I wrote it somewhere in one of our training manuals, that People's attitude when when they're thinking in terms of transitioning away from the way they're used to running to a new way of running is that it's like better to do business with the devil you know than the devil you don't. And what I meant by that was, let's say, for example, that you identified that when you get up to about 35 miles a week, you start to have trouble with your knee habitually. That's just kind of where your break point is. And you have a system in which to repair. So you know you take a week off, you do a little ice, do a little foam rolling. Mm-hmm. Whatever voodoo you do, you, you get yourself back in a place and you go right up against that 35-mile barrier again. And it almost starts to define you. You're, you're a 35-mile-a-week runner. You can't go past that. And you know that the holy grail, the success of your ability to perform better, is somewhere past that. you got to get to 45, 50, 60, whatever miles a week. Mm-hmm. And the limitation is that you break before you get to that, that level of running. And so that would be represented as the devil you know. The devil you don't know is when you've got new, new soreness. Let's say, for example, now all of a sudden something that never hurt before, like your calves, your Achilles, uh, whatever it might be is now strained or starting to bother you and you've never experienced it for, before and now it scares you because 
you're not familiar with this pain. And you're wondering, how long is this going to be? How debilitating is it going to be? Whether you've injured yourself to a point where it's going to be catastrophic? Are you going to need surgical intervention? And you're just like in this really dark place trying to figure out what it is that occurred and, and what you might do to correct it or whether you can. And it's not familiar. So that's the devil you don't know. So it's a lot of times people get stuck in the middle there. And when you think about, and I have a client just the other day we were talking about. He lives in uh, Sydney, Australia. And he said, you know, Richard, he goes, I looked at flights. And right now flights are doing pretty good. I could probably get out to see you for about 600 bucks, and my my focus would be at, at the end of the day, after having spent whatever money I spent, I'm going to be done with all this frustration I've been dealing with, and for me, it's worth it. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and I'm not uh, lobbying for people to travel to come see me, but I'm just, I'm spouting off and defending your position. I think it's probably yeah. not a bad idea if it means enough to you. Well, the, uh, one of the, physical therapist where I was going uh, is a running coach and runs ultras. My doctor, uh, orthopedic doctor, he runs, he does adventure, multi-day adventure races, uh, triathlon, Ironman, and runs ultras. Um, The physical therapist and the doctor didn't bat an eye when I told him I was going to go to California uh, to work with a biomechanics specialist. They both thought it was great. And anyone that I know who's a more serious athlete, I guess, um, they never think anything of it. But, you know, I I think it's people like that hate running or, uh, you know, run 10 to 12 miles a week and then complain about their knees hurting. Uh, Those are the people who are like, why? Why don't you just run less? And I don't think they can understand <laughs> no, no, and I, it's funny because on social media too, I see these threads where people will uh, take a picture of their ankle, or take a picture of their knee that's swollen, or talk about, oh, okay, the doctor told me no running for la 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 time, and then all the comments that follow. Why don't you get an elliptical trainer? Why don't you ride your bike? Why don't? Yeah. And they're giving you all these other options, which are completely, you know, anyone that runs. These are not options for them. You know, they want to be able to continue to do what they do. It sucks right. when somebody tells you you can't do what you enjoy doing. So, for whatever it's worth, let's find another question here. Uh, but, but you know what? Before we uh, before we have you ask another question, I've got a gentleman. Incidentally, this gentleman, his name is Rich Rashaw. Rich, I, I apologize. I'm screwing it up. I'm sure I am. But Rich is actually a group leader, I guess for lack of a better term. He's got an OCR group of folks that he trains with in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and he reached out to me a while back and invited me to come out there and put together a group of folks so I could do a clinic and uh, come up with enough people so we can support the trip. And his attitude, much like yours, is he's willing to go through the trouble to get some professional advice, um, the difference was is that he gathered as many people as he could so that I'd come to him versus you coming to me, and, and you know it's working out. Anyway, Rich uh, and I have been talking, and I've been working with him a little bit already, and he's got some questions that I thought were pretty interesting. And the first question he had was, is there an ideal height for the feet to come off the ground? And I thought that was a pretty good question because I've got them doing essentially these running-in-place drills to develop some kinesthetic awareness, or I guess another term might be muscle memory. I hate that term, but I'll use it anyway. To learn to make efficient contact with his midfoot and allow his heel to make contact with the ground and get accustomed to hitting his 180 strides per minute. And he was barely getting his feet off the ground, um, very little dorsiflexion, in his ankle and it just it was cumbersome i could see he was having trouble with it and it's really kind of an interesting question for me because i love to tell people this in order for you to move your body in whatever direction you're traveling the length of your height so for example if you're six feet tall for you to travel six feet forward 
it's required due to gravitational force that you are off the ground no more than about two and three quarter inches. Now realize that most people, their stride length is in and around 30 inches on average. You could almost cut that in half. So in respect to how high up you need to go in order to travel forward, that's about it. Now, that would seem a little odd for most people to try to attempt it. But I have to tell you, and I always apologize to the Ethiopian, or, or I think it was a Kenyan, that said, a, um, a, well, I think it was a 204 marathon in Berlin. They measured his vertical hop at a half an inch. He was able to run a 204 marathon at a half an inch of vertical oscillation. <laughs> well. Okay, so now that indicates pretty clearly that you don't really need to bound up and down in order to go fast. And you don't need to bound up and down in order to get ground clearance so you don't trip on your face. It's just a function of being in a place where you're moving with inertia at your back opposed to resisting gravity by bouncing up and down. So uh, I guess the answer to the question is you only need to lift your foot as high as you need to. You don't want to try to aspire to really draw your knees high in the air and bring your foot way up off the ground because it's a lot of wasted energy. Right. And um, let me just do this other one, too, because I think this is kind of fun for you, too. He said, would you recommend an OCR athlete to do running with obstacle-specific exercises uh, like pull-ups, burpees, lunges, etc. during the run? And if so, if someone is running at an aerobic pace, would doing the obstacle-specific exercises mess up the aerobic training since more than likely the heart rate will shoot up? And I thought this was a really good functional question for someone to ask, especially in this sport. And I think this is the uncharted ground that people are messing with right now because we don't have a rule book and we don't have enough history in respect to what is the appropriate or inappropriate way to train for an OCR event. So I always go back to what I've learned through my training and exercise physiology and what have you. And let's say, for example, that you started out doing you're doing 30 seconds worth of burpees, and then you're going to take off running. And your focus would be to try to keep your heart rate aerobic during the run segment of the workout. And then you may stop and do some other type of exercise. Let's just say, for example, you you found some place to do some chins and, or go across a rig or something like that. And now, clearly, when you do these exercises, your heart rate's going to go well over your anaerobic threshold, and you're going to be anaerobic. So the question is, does it actually act as a counterproductive move to try to be aerobic in one sitting and be an anaerobic in the next? And my opinion is that there's value in doing the obstacles along with the run, because guess what? That's nothing more than sport specificity. You're actually mimicking the sport. And in order to be successful in that sport, you have to be conditioned to go from an exercise to a run. But odds are when you come off the exercise, you're going to be running anaerobically. If you slow down to become aerobic again, you're going to lose. <laughs> you're not going to be effective. You want to be able to charge off of that obstacle and charge into the run and maintain a decent pace till you get to the next obstacle. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you've effectively improved your anaerobic threshold. In other words, you could take on more and more intensity without going to that dark side. And so it becomes a function of preparing your body to be more aerobic, less inclined to go over your threshold, and or having experienced dealing with being anaerobic through both efforts, whether it be on the rig or running. Uh, I wrote a piece that is available, incidentally, on my website uh, for this podcast. If someone was to go to, I think it's the coaching page, you'll see there's a little icon that says Training the Dark Side. And in that bit, I talked about 
developing lactate tolerance. Lactate tolerance training is a function of becoming, I use the term inoculated, to the ensuing production of lactic acid that's developing in the system. And lactate in its own accord is not an enemy. It's actually a potential energy source if you've trained accordingly. And accordingly meaning that you get exposed to uh, varying and progressive levels of this lactate and allowing your body to learn how to contend with it. So the reason I call it an inoculation, I refer to it as like getting a flu shot, is a good analogy. You get that little bit of the virus in your system so that when you do catch cold, it doesn't take you out. And so think of it in terms of getting better and better of teaching your body to contend with this ensuing lactate production. When you get into that place, that dark side, you're going to be a lot more efficient in, in how you deal with it. So I guess the answer to the question is, if I was writing a training program for someone and I was involved in writing the exercises that are going to coincide with the, the, the running component, I would probably arrange those workouts so that the, the theme of the day was race-specific lactate tolerance training. I would not bother to cause someone to be aerobic in between the efforts because I think it's a waste. First of all, odds are you're not going to spend nearly enough time during the run component to really get a strong handle on that aerobic potential or development of that aerobic potential. Um, so I just think that what you want to do is segregate the aerobic training from the anaerobic training. And that would be the case if you weren't even doing the obstacles, uh, if you were just going to run a marathon. You, you want to segregate those components and develop them individually. And then with time, you start to marry them up a little bit, but there's really no room for being aerobic in most of the obstacle races that you do, with exception of potentially going to a beast or further. Uh, if you were doing, for example, World's Toughest Mudder, you had better learn to become very, very efficient aerobically because you're going to be out there for so long. But most races, if you're going to do like a 5K, uh, you know, what's popular now with the Battle Frog is 6, and 8, and 16K races, you're probably going to be anaerobic most of that time. So you better learn to deal with it. So that's my answer. Do, I think, do, you, I think, mind if I, sure. do you mind if I add something yeah. about just my experience? Yeah. Um, so I... I do Yancey Camp, and I've been doing it now for, what, six or seven months, I guess. Um, and I've significantly increased my running as part of that. Uh, but the way that I trained before, which running and, like, strength intervals or high-intensity intervals were separated, uh, and then Yancey Camp, a lot of times, in whatever, there's a million different ways, uh, we may combine those. I, I don't want to say more about it than Yancey would be comfortable with, but as far as um, my performance and even my confidence to know that I can walk up and blow through three walls in a row and just take back off running and that my heart rate will get to where I need it at the speed that I'm going and I don't even have to think about it. I I think that I mean I, I agree with you mixing um you know mixing that specific training putting those two things together um man it's done wonders for me and even just I mean I think the biggest thing is just knowing that you can walk up attack something and keep going and not give it a second thought right well again I and I I work with some of y Yancey's clients and. I don't get in, I, I always refer to it as not getting into his kitchen. Um, I don't really delve into the, the actual uh, exercise components of the training. I only focus on running mechanics and running, uh, and then I leave the rest to him. And, you know, we talk back and forth, him and I, in respect to where we're going with a particular client and where I'm going, so that we try to stay on the same page and we don't violate one another, in, in theory, I should say. Mm -hmm. But but from a broad stroke perspective, 
what I'm what I'm saying. Well, for, well let me for, for example, if uh, I don't know if you follow it, but on social media, Hunter likes to post these workouts we do every now and then. And just yesterday, I gave him his last workout before he goes to Temecula to race this weekend. And Hunter's going to race the super, and then he's going to do the sprint the following day. If I had to bet, I bet dollars to donuts that he's crushing both of those races, that he's going to own them. And the workout we did yesterday, I'll share with you. Now, mind you, I do this because I'm orchestrating a workout. I'm standing there and I'm controlling the workout. So in my world, I like doing it in my lab. So he's on a treadmill. Now, we have done workouts where we've been on terrain and we would still include the strength component to the the workout but these are interval based sessions and realize that what happens in OCR racing is nothing more than a series of intervals you're going from something that's really intense to something that's less intense and in some cases intervals could be intense too intense then it becomes a function of where you can gather your recovery if you can get it so let me give you an example of what we did I first set up the treadmill so that it was at about a six-minute pace at about an 8% grade. And then I had him do 45-second run, 15-second recovery, 45-second run, and we did that for six intervals. And then we added a component. So I got, uh, uh, it's about a 60-pound kettlebell, and we would do... I increased the incline to 12% grade. I increased the speed to about 11 miles per hour, which is just below a six-minute pace. We do 30 seconds of sprinting up that hill and 30 seconds worth of um, dumbbell squats. And then we gave him 30 seconds for the recovery and put him back up on the treadmill, and we did, I think, four to six sets like that. And then I lowered the grade of the treadmill, and I increased the speed to about 12 miles per hour. And then I had them run for 45 seconds and come off and do burpees with 35-pound dumbbells to an overhead press. So it was, uh, I think it was 45, 30, 30 and 30, or 45 and 30, I forget what it was, with about 30 seconds recovery in between each set. And we did about four of those. And then I pulled them off there, and we just did some intervals at speed. And then I pulled him off that, and then I put him in my harness, and we started doing 360s. So he was running sideways, backwards, forwards. And we went from karaoke to lateral shuffle to backward running to lateral shuffle until I basically exhausted him. And so what I did is I challenged his, his agility and his movement accuracy at the very end of the workout where he was greatest fatigued. And now that's an unusual workout, but everything about what we did was anaerobic. I did not allow him enough time to be aerobic again. And if you think about it, the level of intensity that I threw at him was probably greater than it would be had he been in a a sprint event. Uh, but I wanted him to get accustomed to having that intensity under his belt before he visited those races. And we did something similar to that uh, week before last. We were doing this type of work, and we did some overspeed stuff, so I was throwing him on a treadmill upwards of 20 miles per hour for repeats. And he ran a trail race that was 21K, He set a course record. He took the course away from a guy that had held that course record for several years. He beat the guy by three minutes. And this guy probably weighed about 140 pounds, and Hunter came into that race at about 187 pounds. (laughs) And, I mean, the guy's probably still shaking his head trying to figure out what happened. Hunter seems like a, I don't know, he's like a freak because there's not many of us big guys that seem to perform really well on a consistent basis, whether it's a long course or a short course or what. But he seems to be able to do it. Well, uh, let me let me just offer you this. You don't live in the world that he lives in. Had you had the where to for and the want 
to live like he does, you might find that you may end up performing very close to what he does. I mean, obviously, the, there's a genetic component to it, and but he's a hard, hard working athlete. There's very, very little time in his day where he's not moving. And he'll go right. from doing one thing to the other thing to the next thing, and he is constantly, constantly, constantly moving. And he doesn't have a day job. That is his job. So if you spent the next five years living that life where your whole focus was some fashion of exercise or movement or competition and trying to feed yourself to keep up with it and trying to find enough rest to keep up with it, I don't think you'd be the same cat that you are today because, you know, you're like most of us. You know, you've got a family, you've got bills, you've got a job. What you're doing now is really a function of recreational concern, right? Oh, yeah. So don't don't uh, don't diss yourself in, in, in assuming that, you know, you guys aren't cut from the same cloth. You just don't live the same lives. Right. Yeah. No, I, I would love to be able to train several hours every day. Uh, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. So let's get some of your questions. Well, um, you were talking about Hunter um, moving all the time and needing to feed that. So does the amount of fuel that you're going to need pre, post, during a race, uh, is that going to differ on like your size? Like, the, Will Hunter need more fuel than Hobie Call does if they're running the same race at the same pace? It's an interesting question. And the unfortunate answer is that there's a very limited supply of carbohydrate that we're able to store on our bodies. Mm-hmm. And there's a very limited amount of carbohydrate we can ingest where it would be favorable for us to consume during a, a race or even before a race. So, for example, if me being over 200 pounds, looking at a half marathon, any event that's going to take me beyond two hours, someone might think, well, being as big as you are, you better shove down a couple thousand calories because you're going to burn that during the race. Well, that's going to be true. I will, in fact, burn over a few thousand calories in a couple hours worth of effort. But you can't stockpile that carbohydrate. You can't, there's a limit to how much you can actually hold. And this is why it's so critical that we learn to improve our aerobic potential because the, the better you are aerobically, the greater the fat stores you're going to access when you're running or training or whatever it is might, might, might be doing. And the more aerobic you are, the more sparing you are, are going to be of the carbohydrate stores on your body. So to compare, like, say, Kobe Hall, Cody Moat, some of these guys that are you know, running much lighter than someone like Hunter. Hunter's going to burn a lot more calories than they are, and that's why he's very subject to be challenged by a guy that weighs 145 pounds because their energy cost associated with what they're performing over the distance is much less. And you can only really effectively consume in and around 250 calories an hour where it would actually be of any value to you. Where people get into trouble a lot during races is they try to over-ingest sugars, and then they end up having GI trouble. They end up looking for the porta potty because their GI tract is just not happy about all the sugar they put in their stomachs. So mm-hmm. uh, the truth of the matter is you, you want to have a really good feeding strategy pre, post, and during an event. But the ugly truth is is that you can only patch that leak so well with food during a race it's what you do training that's going to have the greatest impact on what you're able to put up with. Let me give you another example. I do VO2 max testing for ESPN Sports. And I tested, uh, I don't know if you follow professional soccer, but a fellow that's on the U.S. team, uh, Demarcus Beasley, who has actually been to the World Cup four times, only American actually ever to visit the World Cup four times, I tested his anaerobic threshold to be about 175 beats per minute. When this guy's running at about 165 beats per minute, 
the energy he's draining from is 66% fat. And at that heart rate, he's running about a 530 pace. When you're 66% into your fat stores and you're turning out a 530 pace, you're really doing a heck of a job conserving that energy store from your sugar. And you can go a lot longer than someone that, for example, has gone over threshold at the same heart rate and is burning potentially 1,000 calories per hour. So let's just say that the guys weigh the same and they are burning 1,000 calories per hour. You got one athlete that's sparing 660 calories per hour and the other athlete is burning 1,000 calories per hour. He's going to lose every time just because he's going to run out of gas. Mm-hmm. So what... Beasley's trait is, and his talent comes from, his innate ability to be aerobic for a great length of time. And, you know, you know, world-class soccer, these guys are running hard, and it's interval-based, side-to-side, forward-back, moving around, and he's aerobic the whole time. If you were trying to chase him around and you were anaerobic, you'd fall over dead an hour and a half where he could do this all day long. So uh, I guess the answer to the question is, It's important that we feed effectively, but you've got to get a rhythm what your body deals with most effectively. And you want to take into account that there is a limitation to what you can consume effectively per hour. And there is a limit to what you can do for yourself pre-event. And I, I've left out post-event because after you've raised hard, you might as well go ahead and have 15 beers and a, a bunch of pizza, right? <laughs> I don't drink, but I uh, generally eat a whole pizza after I get done with a long event. All right, so what else we got? Um, so what do you recommend for just daily casual shoes that you're wearing? Ah, that's a good question. Well, it really depends. I think it really depends quite a lot on the type of shoe that you train in. And that's a tough question to answer for a lot of people. I have people call me a lot and ask me, hey, I understand I should be in a zero-drop shoe. What shoe should I get? And my answer to that is, first of all, I don't know that you can move to a zero-drop shoe. It could very well be the way your structure is set up and the way you've been training. That might be too drastic a move for you. Um, I could tell you that during the day, Uh, fortunate enough because I work from home, I spend the majority of my day barefoot. And the shoe that I wear is generally as flat as I can find it. Uh, for the very simple reason that your posture is in the best alignment when your heels are flat on the ground. And the way your body reacts to, to ground force is going to be more efficient if you're not on a ledge. So a raised heel is never, in my opinion, a good idea unless you've got really, really tight and short calves or, you know, a tight Achilles, and it's because you've been on heels a lot. Which brings me to the difference between training versus racing shoes. I'll have people that will use a zero-drop shoe when they race, fitted with treads because they're on trail, and then when they run on roads, They may use a shoe that's got a pronounced heel. I think that's a bad idea. I think you should try to be as consistent as you possibly can between the way you train, the way you run, and the way you walk. So my answer would be to, to mimic the height of your heel as effectively as you can throughout. Don't have a lot of deviation between your running, your training, and your walking shoes. Yeah, good answer. <laughs> no, seriously, I do. I spend as much time as I possibly can barefoot. Uh, I'll share with you this morning, I went for a road bike ride. I haven't been on my bike in a while. Me and a, me and a fellow went out, and uh, I was feeling pretty good. I went out pretty hard, and I don't know, we got about, uh, we, we were planning to ride uh, around 30 miles or so. I got out about seven miles, and I got a flat. Cool. And I didn't have a spare. So I made the call for my wife to come back and get me. And meanwhile, instead of just standing there on the side of the road, I started walking back. And I'm in road cycling shoes, which, you know, you just can't walk in them effectively. I took them off, I strapped in my bike, and I walked, you know, I started walking back towards the house barefoot. 
And I will always do that. I, I don't like having weirdness underneath my feet when I walk, even for just a little bit of time. And I can tell you that as old as I am now, my back's been in a better place than it's ever been since I've gotten to a place where my uh, my heels are, are no longer elevated underneath my shoes. Yeah, I, uh, I'm actually able to see that uh, in myself, too, since I started running in a lower drop. I don't run in a zero drop, but generally it's uh, three millimeters for my road shoe and four for my trail shoe. Mm-hmm. Uh and it's that's versus you know the eleven or twelve that I was running in before. Let's see what else do I have here? I thought this is an interesting comment. Uh, Rich asks, after all the tests that I've done, have you seen if Maffetone's formula is generally correct? You you're familiar with Maffetone? I'm not. All right. Well, Dr. Phil Maffetone is he's been in the industry for a very very long time. Um. He takes credit for the success that Mark Allen had winning Ironman year after year after year and working with him. And he is really, really a staunch advocate of training aerobically. And um, I met Phil Maffetone, geez, it must be 15 years ago. And we were co-presenting at a at a, a presentation in Las Vegas for uh, personal trainers in this big chain of health clubs. And his, his theory is this. In order to, given that you haven't been tested, his theory is you take 180 and you subtract your age. So, for example, if you're 40 years old, 40 years old from 180 would be 140. That would be what he would suggest is a, a good aerobic heart rate for you. And then he has some other schematic where, you know, based on how healthy or unhealthy you are, you would either add five, add five more, subtract five. So he kind of operates from that that standard of 180 minus your age. And the question was, after all the testing I've done, do, do I feel like that that's a pretty successful equation to offer someone that's not going to be tested? And I will tell you that I, I have recommended that equation to people that aren't going to be in front of me because I know that commonly that's going to be a conservative aerobic heart rate for most people. Now, for some people, it may be far too conservative, but if I was going to prescribe work for someone, I'd rather be really, really conservative versus being um under conservative, meaning that potentially I'm a little anaerobic. I'd rather have you really aerobic than being just a little bit anaerobic. So uh, I guess the answer would be yes. I, I do recommend that heart rate for most people if they don't have a chance to be tested. Let's get back to some of yours. We got we got time for maybe one more question. So pick your best and take your shot. All right. Uh, let's see here. Going back to. Um, you know, we were talking about really how high you need to lift your foot and your stride. Um, will that sometimes feel like, you know, a notch above shuffling your feet? Well, what happens is, I remember I said it earlier today, when people read and they try to mimic what they've read, it never seems to work out. This, right. This is a prime example of that. People read that they're supposed to be at 180 strides per minute. They go out and try it, and they find that their feet are moving like a buzzsaw in order to go oh. faster. And or, as you suggested, you feel like you're shuffling your feet because you can't pick your feet up fast enough. Right. And I started at 170, which still felt really weird. And over the course of three months or so, moved up to 180, but it still feels, I mean, every now and then it feels natural, but it feels weird a lot of the time still. There's there's so much more to it than just being at 180. It, I have people that um, you'll see on video, if you visit any of the videos that I have on my site or even uh, through YouTube or Vimeo on my DiazHumanPerformance.com site, you're going to see... Um, Runners, either on a treadmill or outside, 
where you'll hear the metronome in the background, and their stride is opened up beautifully behind them. And the, the goal is to increase your stride length while maintaining 180 strides per minute. I'll give you a prime example of what I'm talking about. I don't know if it's still up, but for a while there on flowtrack.com, you could see a video of Galen Rupp setting the indoor record for five kilometers. If you don't know who Galen Rupp is, he's trained by Alberto Salazar. And he, I don't know if he still holds it, but he held last year the American indoor record for the 5K and 10K. And to let you know what that was, I believe at the time it was 13.01 for the 5K indoor record. And I don't recall what it was for the 10K, but he set both records. He's dead on 180 strides per minute, and his stride length is is dramatically opened up behind him. Very, very effective in moving through space. So it isn't just about how frequently you make contact with the ground. It's where, in fact, you make contact with the ground and how well you're able to open up your stride angle behind you. And you're going to learn that with me when I see you next week because it's a whole lot easier to show you than it is to try to tell you. Uh, yeah, which is why I'm coming there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm being evasive, but the truth of the matter is um, it just really is hard. I mean, it's, it's I could see very easily how someone would be frustrated and just give it up. And I've had clients that try to give it up on me, but because they're sending me data, I see what they're doing wrong. And the same type of problems arise. The injuries that they used to have don't go away. It's because they've never broke through to the promised land. And there absolutely is a promised land. When you get to this place where you've made the corrections and the improvements that I have people make, it's really pretty amazing. I don't know if you know Miguel Medina. Have you heard of him? Uh, yeah, actually, Miguel is who I'm teamed with in Yancey Camp, and I think he and I are we're going to try to get together after I do my testing with you. Oh, cool. Well, good example is Miguel came to me for me to help him with his running mechanics, and I have video. I'm actually going to release some videos here in the next couple of days, <clears throat> but I've got video of the way Miguel's moving these days, and he's running beautifully. His stride is open up behind him very, very methodically, very, very comfortable. He looks effortless when he's moving. His contact points are just about perfect. And his running skills have really, really improved dramatically since we started working together. And I had him running with Hunter just the other day, and I got video of both of them running side by side. And he looked better than Hunter. Uh, fact of the matter is, Hunter's such a strong athlete, it would be... It would be tough for Miguel to to catch him, but it's getting interesting. Let me just put it like that. <laughs> well, look, I'm I'm looking forward to to meeting you. I'm looking forward to working with you. I'm hoping to make you proud when you go home. Uh, you're you're going to have a lot of stuff to work with. I want to remind people one more time that this weekend, Saturday, those that are going to Temecula. If they reach out to me, RSVP, we'll let them participate in our little, uh, we call it the town hall meeting. We're going to, Hunter and I are going to uh, orchestrate a little Q&A session with uh, OCR athletes and talk about the things we're talking about now and possibly some other things with Hunter involved. And that's going to be at the Pala Mesa Resort. I think it's about 15 minutes outside of Temecula. And I'll be in Baton Rouge doing a clinic on the 27th and 28th. We're doing VO2 testing on the 27th and doing the running clinic on the 28th. We still have room for people that want to do the clinic. We're sold out for the VO2 testing. To find out more about that, you go to naturalrunningcoach.net forward slash clinic, clinics plural, dot HTML, and you'll find the information there. All right, buddy, thank you so much for your time. And I'll oh, get thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I really am. It's going to be awesome. All right. I'll uh, see you Tuesday. All right, bud. Thanks. 
Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.